Hello and welcome to the Friday, November 12, 2021 edition of On Iowa Politics. This week, first district developments, lawmakers on the move, and infrastructure impact. Hi, I'm James Lynch of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. With me today are Tom Barton of the Quad City Times. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, James. Amy Rivers of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. Good morning, Amy. Good morning, James. Aaron Murphy, State House Bureau Chief for Lee Newspapers. Good morning, Aaron. Good morning from Central Iowa with a little snow on the ground here. Just Ooh. so thrilled about that. Us too. <laughs> you can have it. <laughs> <laughs> and Gazette Opinion Editor Todd Dorman. Good morning, Todd. Good morning. Did it take you long to shovel your sidewalk? Uh, my my deck is 100% snow and ice covered. Travel not advised. <laughs> Uh, you can find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to Line Iowa Politics wherever you find your podcast. First up today, Miller Meeks on the move. U.S. Representative Marionette Miller Meeks ended speculation about her plans this week when she announced she will run for re-election in the new first district, which includes much of her current Southeast Iowa district. It seemed like a natural fit and a logical move, at least to everyone but uh, Democrats. To them, Miller Meeks was cutting and running, afraid to face third district Sydney Axney and she was picking her voters rather than the voters picking their representative. I don't think anyone actually called her a carpetbagger, but that seemed to be part of the criticism. Former Representative Dave Loebsack joined in tweeting, quote, I would expect you to live in the district you hope to represent. That is all that matters, end quote. Not sure if that was a criticism or just merely an observation on his part. Um, since he should know, he moved from Lynn County to Johnson County to run for re-election in what is now the, the current second district. Uh, Tom, you, you covered the Miller Meeks announcement. Her decision was not totally unexpected. How did she address the issue of moving into the district? So she would not say if she would move into the district um, and that she had not decided whether she would sell her home in Ottumwa, um, stating she felt it was most important to let people know what her intentions were so that they can continue their plans or change their plans in accordance with with her announcement. She said her contention or excuse me, she said her connection to the district is strong and that she never wanted people in the district who voted for her to feel like she was betraying them. Um, she noted that while her home in Wapalo County is now part of is, is excuse me, is, is not part of the new district and is now part of the third district, um, that the counties that will become the new first congressional district have been her home uh, for many reasons. Um, she mentioned going to the University of Iowa for her residency in ophthalmology and was on faculty there. Um, she practiced ophthalmology in West Burlington. Um, she said she has a special connection with so many people throughout the, the, the first district that she really considers it home, even though her home technically um, is not in the district um, and is, you know, just on the, the, um, the very um, western, western border, western edge um, of the district. Um, and she went on to say that uh, she felt that Southeast Iowa deserves stability with an incumbent in Congress um, in light of the disruption caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, less expected than Miller Meeks' announcement was one from Quad City businessman Kyle Keel saying that he's going to run as a Democrat or as a Republican in that new first district. Um, tell us about him, Tom. 
Yeah, so it's not clear to me what he brings to the race. Um, he's a Bettendorf real estate uh, business owner who served as a sniper in the Iowa Army National Guard, uh, was deployed to Afghanistan in 2010. Um, he's a first-time candidate uh, who said that he has absolutely zero political experience and that uh, he is running on his experience serving in the military and as a business owner. Um, he said that when he looks at Congress, quote, there are too few veterans in Congress and way too few business owners in Congress. And honestly, that's why not much is getting done, end quote. Um, I will note, currently there are 76 members in the House of Representatives who are veterans, Miller Meeks among them. Um, she is a veteran of the U.S. Army and the Army Reserves. You know, she enlisted at the age of 18, served for 24 years as a nurse and doctor, retired at the rank of lieutenant colonel. Um, I, I would also note, though, that Kuehl uh, made his announcement or made his comments prior to Miller Meeks announcing uh, her run for the first district, um, which, you know, that's going to make it extremely difficult for him to gain any traction if his main pitch is that he's a veteran and a business owner. Um, running as, as a political outsider, you know, that whole um, veteran angle, you know, that that messaging isn't really going to resonate with a whole lot of voters when you've got Miller Meeks in the race. Mm-hmm. Are, are Republican officials on the local level or state level saying anything about the potential GOP primary? No, not that I've heard, but uh, local, state and national party leaders are, you know, firmly support Miller Meeks. Sure. Um, and the first district, while it may be a, a good fit for Miller Meeks, is it a good district for Republicans in 2022? So uh, in the new district, Democrats make up roughly 35 percent of the active registered voters in the district. Republicans make up about 32 percent. So Democrats, you know, still maintain kind of their slight advantage. Um with registered voters, um, not affiliated voters, um, you know, still a large segment, though they still make up about 31%. So, you know, suggesting that, you know, this is still a very competitive district for both parties. Um, but based on 2020 election results, uh, Democrat would have carried the new set of counties that now comprise Iowa's first district by a little more than 2000 votes. Okay. Uh, and we should mention that uh, there is a, a Democrat who has announced uh, that she's running in that district, uh, State Representative Christina Bohannon, a law professor at the University of Iowa, um, announced that she's running there. Um, I don't think any other. Actually, there are, there are two Democrats. Oh, OK. Yeah, Breaking news. Uh... <laughs> well, I don't, I don't, I don't know, I don't know about that. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure that we we reported on this before. Um, but you know, he he is um, kind of a, a little known candidate. You know, he hasn't had there wasn't much fanfare, at least uh, to his his announcement, and uh, you know, hasn't been as active as um, uh, Iowa City State Representative uh, Christina Bohannon, as you mentioned. Um, but um, Joseph and. <laughs> I, I got to look this up because now I'm blanking on his last name. Um, <laughs> Little Nolan. <laughs> sorry. Um, Joseph, Joseph Kerner, he's a, a senior cultivator for the state licensed medical uh, marijuana, marijuana manufacturer, Med Farm, Iowa. Um, he's a uh, Knoxville Democrat, has also announced a campaign for the first district. Okay, that's right. Yeah. So there are two Democrats uh, running in the first district and two Republicans. 
see how how well that works out. Um, Todd, um, there there's sort of a history in Iowa of candidates from both parties hopping from district to district to run for re-election, isn't there? Yeah, well, you mentioned Dave Loebsack moving to Iowa City to avoid you know, a potential primary against Bruce Braley back in 2012. Uh, you know, earlier than that, we had Jim Leach, who had, was living in Davenport. It's his, his hometown. He represented it for years, and he moved to uh, Iowa City to avoid uh, a primary against uh, Jim Nussel. That was way back in 2002. Uh, so, yeah, both parties have seen it. Tom Latham actually moved within his district in 2007 to Ames, and that proved to be uh, fortunate because he ended up beating Leonard Boswell in 2012. And Boswell had moved out of his from his home rural base to to Des Moines because he didn't want to have to take on Steve King in a very Republican district, and so. But then he ended up losing to to Tom Latham. And that was the first election after we lost a congressional seat. So there was a lot of shuffling around. So yeah, it's, you know, this is just when you draw maps, they're not supposed to take into account where these incumbents live. So, I mean, it's, it's actually, you know, the fact that this has to happen or that does happen is actually a sign that the system sort of works and isn't trying to, you know, uh, provide favorable maps for people that are already in office. Aaron uh, Miller-Meek's decision probably comes uh, as welcome news to some third district Republicans who hope to run there against Sydney, Representative Cindy Axney. Um, what's the situation there? How many people are running and uh, anybody looking like a front runner? Yeah, that, that was already a somewhat crowded uh, Republican primary field. Uh, we've got four um, declared uh, Republican candidates. Um, three of them have uh, been fundraising according to federal records. Um, uh, so we've got a couple of state legislators, uh, Zach Nunn and uh, Marianne Hanusa. <clears throat> and then uh, the other candidates are, are uh, Nicole Hasso and Gary Leffler. Uh, so so already a crowded Republican uh, field. And obviously if uh, Marianne Miller Meeks joined that um, as, as an incumbent, um, that, that would have even more dramatically change the dynamics of that primary as it stands now with that field kind of being left as is. Um, I think, you know, the, the, the early thinking seems to be that maybe that's as uh, Zach Nunn is considered the, um, the, the favorite in that primary. He's done the best so far on the fundraising uh, front. He's <clears throat> is about as well known as a state legislator can be for not having been in a leadership uh, role at least people who are active within the party are familiar with him. Um, he's a veteran. He ser- he serves in the in the Iowa National Guard, um, and uh, so um, he's probably the, the the favorite in 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 that primary. Um, uh, it'll be interesting to see um, how that folds out. Whether the others are able to uh, to gain any traction. And Zach Nunn toyed with this idea two years ago too. He ultimately decided not to run two years ago, but he had, you know, been exploring and getting around and meeting the people of the district. Um, uh, so, so he came in with that little bit of a head start as, as well. Yeah. And Marianne Hanusa um, lives in the fourth district, but um, 
or she's she's in the new fourth district. She lives in the current third district, and um, but she can run in the n- new third district. God, this is confusing. <laughs> <laughs> Can't tell a candidate without a program. She, she lives over by uh, Council Bluffs, which is no longer will no longer be in Cindy Axney's district, but she still can run um, uh, as long as she lives in Iowa. And I'll be honest, I haven't heard her declare one way or the other what she's doing, so I apologize if she yeah. hasn't. I've, yeah. I've I haven't heard anything since the, the new map was approved, whether she still plans to run or or not. Uh, probably not going to challenge Randy Feenstra, I'm guessing. <laughs> That's uh, but, probably safe. <laughs> yeah. That would be interesting, though. Um, meanwhile, the second district, Amy, is Republican tinted, according to one analysis, but looks to be competitive with state representative or state senator Liz Mathis challenging GOP incumbent representative Ashley Hinson. Um, Trump would have carried this district by four points, um, but Democrat Fred Hubble won it by just a, a few votes in 2018. Both of these candidates have raised a lot of money. Um, Hinson has raised more than $2 million this year and has $1.4 million cash on hand. Mathis slightly less than half that, but of course started raising funds much later. Um, should be a good race for television revenue. Um, yeah. I'm wondering how, how might the UAW strike against John Deere play in this contest? It's really interesting. Um, I know you've probably seen the stories from Iowa starting line and, and capital dispatch about, um, Grassley's not Grassley, but the NRCC basically, you know, saying that, that coming out basically saying the strike is really bad for farmers and, and is hurting them a lot. Um, that could be a preview then of what we're seeing if that ends up, you know, working. Um, because I think it is Republicans been taking it very cautiously. You know, there's a lot of um, especially um, a lot of areas around Iowa that have John Deere facilities or are John Deere adjacent, which means they have dealerships. They have companies that deal with them directly. There's a lot of money tied into John Deere and it's. Yeah, it's it's really something that I don't think Republicans wanted to wade into and maybe not even a lot of Democrats. You are seeing some Democrats that are basically coming on and, and, you know, coming out for the workers and things like that. But it'll be really interesting. I think they're still solidifying their position, but we might have seen a preview of it in the last few days. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's an assumption that union members are going to back Democratic candidates. But there's also a lot of evidence that blue-collar workers uh, supported Donald Trump and Republicans in general. Um, and, and I mean, you know, there are a lot of folks um, who work at John Deere who would fall into that category. Um, so, you know, I don't know if this will change their perspective um, or, or not. And it may yeah, depend it's on how really long interesting. I think, you know, you don't have workers necessarily uh, falling directly into the Democratic camps anymore. You know, you still got the leadership and, and um, a lot of the old guard that still sees the Democratic Party as in their best interest. But you also see a lot of the younger people or a lot of the other, um, you know, more Republican leaning workers that are saying, look, Democrats had a chance to, to help us and look at NAFTA and look at, you know, all these corporate tax breaks that happened in Obama's watch. You know, there's a lot of things that they can point to to say, you know, Democrats haven't exactly been worker friendly either. And these are actually um, sort of possibilities for Democrats going into the next election. Are they going to take a stronger stand for workers? Because if they do, 
they could get these people back in this time that seems to be really, really worker friendly. All right. Moving from the congressional races down to the legislative races, um, we're seeing that a number of Iowa lawmakers have announced plans, uh, not that they necessarily involve fiscal moves, uh, but they're announcing moves for dealing with a new redistricting plan. Some have announced their retirements, guaranteeing some new, if not fresh faces in the legislature in 2023. Tom, some uh, Quad Cities area legislators have made their intentions known. Are, are they all moving to making safe moves? Um, they are. While the district boundaries have shifted, for the most part, they're all running in districts that are still relatively safe for the incumbent. Um, so, for example, uh, Bettendorf Republican uh, State Representative Gary Moore, um, who chairs the House Budget Writing Committee, um, is going to seek re-election to a district that includes uh, Eastern Bettendorf, Riverdale, Pleasant Valley Township, and the city of LeClaire, the conservative areas of the Iowa Quad Cities, which will be an easy pickup for Republicans. Um, Iowa State Senator Chris Knoyer, a Republican from LeClaire, announced she will seek re-election to a district that encompasses um, Clinton County, Northern Scott County, and then um, it picks up southwestern Jackson County, which is not much different from her current district. You know, she was already representing um, Clinton County and the northern part of Scott County. Um, on the Democratic side, uh, Iowa State Representative Cindy Winkler and Monica Kurth, who live in the western part of Davenport, were drawn into the same district. Uh, Winkler announced that she will uh, seek election to the new open Iowa Senate District 49 seat. Um, she's represented parts of Davenport and uh, southwestern Scott County in the legislature for the past 21 years. And um, the new Senate district includes much of the city of Davenport and continues to the Scott County border. So it's an area not much different from, from our current House district. And then Kurth plans to seek re-election to the new Iowa House District 98 seat. Any word on uh, the potential for Jim Lycom and Robbie Smith? Uh, are they still paired up? They, yeah, they are. So um, neither uh, Lycom, a Democrat, uh, nor Smith, a Republican, have publicly announced their re-election plans. But uh, yes, they were both um, drawn into the same Senate districts. Okay. In uh, the Gazette area, it looks like there will be a GOP primary in a Jones-Jackson district where incumbents Lee Hine and Steve Bradley both live. Um, representatives Chad Engels and Sandy Salmon have avoided a primary because Salmon is running for a Senate district where there's no incumbent. Amy, I don't know if there are any other Northeast Iowa um, incumbent on incumbent races uh, and anybody's making It would be moves. Roz Smith and Timmy Brown Powers, but oh. Roz is running for governor, so. Yeah. So he, he took care of that. Uh, yep. In Lynn County, <laughs> there's potential for a GOP primary in the new Lynn, Iowa County Senate District. And in Johnson County, there will be a Senate uh, and two vacant House seats due to retirements or, well, two of those are for retirements and one uh, where Christina Bohannon is running for Congress. And there may be an incumbent on incumbent matchup in uh, Johnson, Iowa County Senate District between Senators Kevin Kinney and Don Driscoll. Both say they're running for re-election, um, and uh, Kenny hasn't said where he's running for re-election, but I'm not sure that he's going to make any move. Uh, it sounds like they're, they'll face off um, against each other, which leads us into our next discussion of infrastructure. With all these people making moves, we need good roads and bridges so they can get 
there to their new districts. Um, Aaron, uh, you've been doing a deep dive on what the new infrastructure bill will mean for Iowa. Um, what should we expect? Are we going to see bridges everywhere, um, new roads, uh, <laughs> rebuilding the Des Moines Mixmaster again? <laughs> I know that's coming and that's going to be such a nightmare when they do it eventually. Um, yeah, so it, it was interesting talking, especially to Iowa DOT this uh, week, um, because obviously they'll see the, the, the biggest impact from this. And um, <clears throat> Director Stuart Anderson compared it to um, the gas tax increase of, uh, gosh, what's that been, five, six years ago now yeah. um, here in, in Iowa. Um, it, it, as far as the amount of revenue, the new revenue that this will generate. Um, so um, it will it will help them kind of uh, speed up their, their plan and, and, and local governments as well will be able to prioritize and, and, and start advancing projects maybe on a, on a little quicker pace than they um, would have uh, before this. So uh, the, the one catch and caveat to all this is um, just like so many other <clears throat> Industries, the construction construction industry is impacted by workforce issues. Um, uh, when I talked to Director Anderson, he was a little op he was optimistic that it, it's maybe not as bad as in as in other industries, and that uh, that construction companies have been kind of um, planning for this and 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 you know making contingency plans and doing what they can to have enough people in place to. Uh, to handle any kind of increased workload, so he he sounded optimistic that it 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 won't be you know um, it, as big as an issue as maybe some other industries are are facing, but it's it's still something of an unknown. Um, so, but but yeah, so so um, you know we we should see like we saw the big one in in when the gas tax increase was all of a sudden Highway 20 got done. Uh, four lanes all the way across to, to Western Iowa. So, so we should start to um, hopefully see uh, some of those projects that have been on state and, and local government's wish lists. Um, um, maybe this schedule, maybe that pace gets picked up a little bit now here. Um, airports are in for some <clears throat> increased revenue. And uh, I know Des Moines has a terminal replacement uh, project that they're trying to raise money for. And, and this will speed that that fundraising process along <clears throat> um public transportation will get a, a little bit of a boost if, if cities have buses that are in need of of upkeep or replacing um they're going to get some help so so this should have some fairly visible and tangible uh, effects um the downside i guess is it means more orange barrels so uh, <laughs> is there any uh likelihood that this means uh, you know with uh, Amtrak Joe in the White House that we're going to see Amtrak extend service to the Quad Cities and farther west yeah I haven't heard that um, being part of uh, you know that's that's still as much of a of a need as much as a funding thing it is so I don't know that this uh, the, the impression I've gotten is this doesn't necessarily uh, move the needle uh, on that okay. um, Amy and Tom, um, are you hearing from local government officials about sort of their, their wish list for the new infrastructure funds? 
projects that they want to see done in, in Waterloo, Cedar Falls, or the Quad Cities areas? Honestly, right now for us, I'm still hearing about how they're going to use ARP funds. Like okay. they're, they're still talking about that. Um, and, and these can be used for, for infrastructure things, um, especially like sewer, wastewater, and broadband, which are huge projects locally. Um, especially when the Iowa DNR came down and said that everybody basically needed to upgrade their, their sewer systems um, and, and, and projects like that need a lot, lot, lot of money. So definitely ARP funds are going to help with that. Um, and then maybe once they've got a little bit down the road, they'll, they'll think about this other pot of money that and and what they can spend that on too so it'll it's i mean it's a blessing but it's also a lot of work i think on municipalities to try to put together um good projects that they know that they can do that then won't need that additional money year after year after year when they won't get it from the federal government yeah i would i would say the same thing uh the only difference here in the quad cities is that um davenport city officials um have just gotten a um uh, a, a flood resiliency plan from uh, their flood consultants um, that uh, outlines about $165 million worth of recommended projects to help um, mitigate um, the, the, the impacts uh, and, and the damage caused by uh, more frequent river flooding. And so um, the infrastructure bill, definitely, you know, things that they're looking for out of that are uh, is, is funding for um, climate resiliency and funding for those infrastructure projects along the riverfront where, you know, they could they could partner with the federal government and get some grant money to, to do um, some of these things like um, upgrading um, the, the, the sewer system like underneath um, River Drive along the riverfront where, you know, the water comes up from underneath and, and, and causes flooding. So um, I think those projects are the ones where they're going to be looking for some funding out of this uh, infrastructure bill. That made me think when Tom was talking about the flooding in the river, it made me remember one that I left out and I should highlight because it's we hear about it constantly. I remember standing on one of the Mississippi River locks and dams with Congressman Bruce Braley and, um, when I first uh, moved over the beat in 2012, and that's uh, the locks and dams. Uh, there's, some, there's a boost in funding uh, for the Corps of Engineers budget in this too. And, and what, while it's not specifically delineated, I think that's what people are hoping to see out of that is um, forever they've been wanting to do some pretty significant upgrades on that lock and dam system on the Mississippi River, and, and that could come out of this as well. And that's one of the things that Ashley Hinson mentioned on the call today, too, when I asked her about, um, you know, she didn't vote for the infrastructure bill, but were there things that she was hoping that communities were going to be able to get done? Locks and dams was one of the top of the list. I think she's been touring around a lot of those and, and sort of seeing the deterioration and what needs to be done there. It's interesting that we uh, seem to have moved from flood mitigation now to climate resiliency. Um, that's that's the, the new term for those uh, protections. Todd, um, I, I was going to ask you, uh, and Amy just mentioned this, Congresswoman um, Hinson and Congresswoman Miller-Meeks both voted against the infrastructure bill. Um, it, how, how is this going to play out politically? Um, you know, when they start cutting ribbons on, on new uh, roads and uh, locks and dams and, and uh, you know, are they going to champion what uh, the federal government has helped uh, Iowa get done or are they going to, uh, you know, stay away from these uh, celebrations of progress? And oh, you know, I'm, I'm sure that in some cases they will and they'll get called out for it and they, you know, probably won't care about the calling out, but you know, it, it's 
they they did make a political calculation, and I think it is that they they didn't dare vote for the bill, or they'd find themselves in the position that the thirteen Republicans who voted for it in the House are now, which you know, with people calling for their committee assignments be to be stripped, and they're taking a beating from the from the the former president who is going around and saying he doesn't he likes all the House Republicans except the thirteen that voted for the the phony infrastructure bill, and and so they're paying a political price, and I think that was part of the calculation for Henson and Miller Meeks that they wanted to sort of have it both ways that the, the bill would pass, but they got to vote no because. You know, they, they, they tried to argue that this somehow was tied to the budget reconciliation package that has a lot of the social spending in it, which in reality, it's not. I mean, it, w- it was tied together for Democrats because they were trying to line up votes, progressives and moderates. But as far as Republicans are concerned, they could have voted for the infrastructure bill. Several of them did. And it wouldn't have it didn't advance the reconciliation bill at all. So they're trying to put the focus on, you know, reckless socialism. When in fact, you know, they they could have just voted for the infrastructure bill and then continued to, to blast the other bill as reckless Marxist, whatever whatever you want to call it. But uh, yeah, and I, I think it's you know I think it's a bad look. I think there will be people in their district that are uh, you know unhappy that they were you know that they voted against a popular piece of legislation that's going to do some good for their districts just so that you know they could stay on the on the Trump side of the of the party. Yeah, the, the former president is calling this a, a phony infrastructure bill. I guess real infrastructure week will have to wait until the second Trump term, uh, <laughs> beginning in 2025. <laughs> and when it does, we'll talk about it on a future edition of On Iowa Politics. If you enjoy the podcast, tell a friend and subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Send your fan mail to podcast at thegazette.com. And you can find us on the home pages of the Quad City Times, Sioux City Journal, Muscatine Journal, Mason City Globe Gazette, Waterloo, Cedar Falls Courier, and the Cedar Rapids Gazette. The Surf Zombies will take us out. If you know an Iowa band or musician who should be on our show, send us a sound file and subscribe to On Iowa Politics. For Aaron, Amy, Todd, Tom, and our producer, Katie, I'm James Lynch. Thanks for listening. Be well.